we're going through the book of Genesis this semester in, in large group. And uh, last week we did chapter 13. This week we're skipping ahead to chapter 15. And just to kind of recall to mind where we've been. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, three of the most important verses in the Old Testament, God makes His promise to Abram, the father of God's people, that He's going to bless him, make him to a great nation, and through him bless the world. This is the promise of salvation to the world. And uh, we've seen Abram struggle to believe that promise. In chapter 13, we saw him faithful to believe in that promise and live as if that promise is true. And what happens in chapter 14, before we get to where we're going to read from tonight, you kind of need to know the background uh, of what happens in chapter 14. What happens in chapter 14 is these four kings band together. Their, their names and their kingdoms are listed there. And they go about terrorizing the land. They end up taking captive several other kings, including Abram's nephew, Lot, uh, who we were introduced to last week. And those kings cried out for justice and cried out for mercy. Abram heard about it, heard about his nephew being taken captive. He takes 318 soldiers and he goes and he defeats those four kings, delivers his nephew out of uh, captivity and like restores peace in order to the land. He does the brave heart fantasy that every guy in this room has or the 300 fantasy that every guy in this room has. Abram is at the top of his game. He's doing the mask in the fantasy we all wish we did, which is with swords, defeat bad guys and save good people. This is what every guy in this room fantasizes about girls. This is insight into the male mind. Um, Abram's at the top of his game. Things are going well. After he defeats the kings, he actually meets up with Melchizedek, who's a king and a priest of God. And Melchizedek blesses him, gives God's blessing to Abram. Abram gives up money to Melchizedek. He gives it back to God. He tithes to him. The king of Sodom offers Abram more money and more things, and Abram gives it away. He's being self-sacrificial. He is living out like the ultimate male fantasy. He's doing everything right. He's saving people with swords. He's defeating bad guys. And, and he's being kind and generous along the way. And then we get to chapter 15. And this is what we're going to read tonight. And it's kind of a shocking shift. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not. Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer is most likely just a servant in his house, not even a relative. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Abram had no children at this point. And he brought him outside and said, Look at the heaven. Number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And we're going to skip forward to verse 17 to get to the end of the passage. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, 
Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I'll give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the, Kad- the Kadbanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, thank you for your word again. As we consider it, I pray, dear God, that we would find this is a, place, a safe place to bring our fears. I pray now that you would draw out our fears, that all the deep anxieties we hold and we harbor and we cover over, that we would draw them up, that we would call them to mind. All the distractions throughout the day, I pray they would come to the forefront of our mind. Everything that weighs heavy on us, all our insecurities, I pray that you would place them on our mind and on our heart now so that we can present them before your word. And I pray that you would speak to them for us. In your name we pray. Amen. <coughs> this past weekend I watched a movie called The Nines that David Collins lent to me. Uh, it's a great movie, but there's this chilling moment in the movie where one of the characters sings this song called Is That All There Is? It's a song recorded by a woman named Peggy Lee in the 50s. And um, the second and third verse go like this. When I was 12, year old, 12 years old, my father took me to the circus, the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears. A beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And so I sat there watching the marvelous spectacle, and I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a circus? Next verse. Then I fell in love, head over heels in love with the most wonderful boy in the world. We would take long walks by the river, just sit for hours, gazing in each other's eyes. We were so very much in love. Then one day he went away, and I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? Last verse. I know you must be saying to yourselves, if that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, no, not me. I'm in no hurry for that final disappointment, for I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you, when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? And that's the chorus. Is that all there is? If that, is that all there is? If, there, that, if that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. And it's this chilling moment in the movie because the guy is having a crisis about reality and about life. And he's asking the question, is that it? And what's chilling about this song is the first verse, which I didn't read, is her reflecting about a house fire when she was little, reflecting on a bad moment in life and saying, is that all there is? And the middle two verses are reflecting on the best moments in life and asking the question, is that all there is? And I would suggest to you that the most troubling, the most distressing the harshest moments, the most difficult moments in life are actually not the bad ones. They're actually the best ones. And that's what that movie, uh, that's what that song reflects on. The worst moment in life is the aftertaste, the sorrowful, fearful aftertaste after the best moments. Because the best moments end and you still have the question, is that it? Because the best moment just ended. And maybe you've had that feeling before. There's a Tom Brady interview, you've probably heard this, this is totally sermon material from 60 Minutes 2005. Tom Brady says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? 
I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, th- this is what it is. I reached my goal. I'd reached my dream, my life. And I think there's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. The interviewer asked him, what's the answer? He says, I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me I'm trying to find. I think the most distressing moments in life are not the hardest circumstances. It's the best moments in life and right afterwards when the best moments are over, when the best moments didn't fix it all, when it wasn't all made right after everything came together for you. You've had those times, everybody's had those moments of personal success with social or professional, athletic, whatever it is, where it all came together and it was sweet and it was good and it ended. And the question before us is, is that's all there is. This is me on Tuesday nights. I, I sweat Tuesday nights big time all leading up to it. And there are Tuesday nights where I go home. I, I walk out of this room and I'm like, I brought the heat. I brought the gospel. Man, like, I just nailed it, you know? And um, the nights where I'm the most confident, the nights where I walk out of here and thought, I just nailed it. And you know what? I very well might have. Those are the loneliest drives home. Uh, because that was it. That was my best moment. And it didn't last. And it's over. And I'm driving home going, is that it? Is that all there is? Can you be honest about those moments? What do we fear in those moments? Is that all there is? Does it not get better? Does it not get made right? Are the bad things not going to get wiped away? Are the good things... Only fleeting. In every good moment, there's this tiny taste, right, of the way it was supposed to be. And we're constantly trying to get back to it because we can't hold on to it. And we have, these, we have several approaches, coping mechanisms, where we're like, okay, how do I get back to it? And one of those is, is one of the most common ones is actually just religion. And by that, I mean work. And religion, you can be religious about your score. You can be religious about morality. You can be religious about your social life. What I mean by that is you're working. You're trying to control it. If I work hard enough and we get the best grades, I can merit wealth and approval, right? I can hold on to that best moment, right? If I'm moral enough, I can merit reward. If I'm people-pleasing enough, if I get everybody happy with me, I can have that best moment and hold on to it where everybody likes me. So sometimes we try religion to get there. Sometimes we try replacement or mimicry. We try to mimic that moment. That's what drunkenness is. Drunkenness is, I have so little confidence, but with a little bit of chemical help, I can feel fearless for a couple of minutes. Right? That's what pornography is. It's a mimicry. It's a mimicry of, for a couple of moments, I can have the attention of a digital person. I can feel loved, I can feel intimacy, I can feel ecstasy. Pornography is a mimicry of the good things. Drunkenness is a mimicry of the good things. Exercise is a mimicry of our resurrection bodies. For a couple of moments, maybe for a couple of months and a couple of years, I can make my body right again. I hate my body. I can make it right again if I work hard enough. It's a mimicry of what God intended for your body. So we try religion. We try working hard enough. We try a replacement. We try mimicking those good things. And lastly, maybe sometimes, may, um, oftentimes we just retreat. We try religion. We try to replace it. Or we'll just retreat from hope. And that is usually it takes the form of irony and folly and laughing. 
I'm just going to retire into irony and retire into foolishness and just kind of laugh until it's over. Is this all there is? That's the question. That's the question set before Abram. That's the fear. That's the doubt that haunts us in life always, in the worst moments and in the best moments. This is Abram coming off his best moments. What does he fear? That first point. After the stories of chapter 14, the first thing we hear about is Abram's fear. After these things, the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. He fears that it's not going to get made right. Why? Because his heir, his family, was God making the world right again. He had to have a child for God's promises from chapter 12 to be true for Abram to become a great nation. He had to become a great nation so that through his nation, the world would be blessed. All of salvation hinges on Abram having a child. All of God's promises for fixing the world hinge on that. All God's promises for us hinge on this old Jewish guy, he's actually not even Jewish at this point, having his first child because he hasn't had one yet. God, will you make this right? Is what Abram's crying. He's getting old. His wife is getting old. They don't have land. They don't have an heir. Is it going to get made right? Abram's cry for an heir is a cry to God. God, make it right. God, will you make the world right? God, will you make me right? And we... Just like Abram, fear that he's not going to. That God's not going to make it right. And the reason why is because just like Abram, we look at the circumstances around us, and when, we, when we're honest, we feel like it's not going to happen. And it's those best moments that are the scariest. The minutes right after the best moments. When we look around and we're like, it didn't get made right. Why am I still wrong? Why is the world still wrong You see, the believer's cry is the same one that's in Abram's heart. God tells him, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be great. And Abram says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is this guy, Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household, a servant, is going to be my heir. Abram's cry is this, but God, you said... But God, you said, and that's our cry in our best moments and our worst moments. God, you said there was going to be joy. God, you said that you were going to bless the world. God, you said that death would not reign, that sin wouldn't control me. You said that you would heal relationships. You said the world would get made right. You said that I would get made right. Abram is giving voice to the fears and doubts that we all are too often afraid to actually say. We look at the circumstances in our life and say, but God, you said it was going to be right. That I would be made right. Now, here's what I want you all to know, man. Christianity is not nostalgia. It's not sentimentality. It's not something you think in your head that that doesn't help you in your real world life. It doesn't have to feel detached from the reality of what you do every day when you're walking your classes, when you're walking across campus, the day-to-day, hour after hour, anxiety, responsibilities, and tasks and relationships before you. You can walk into those situations where you feel all your but gods and you can take your but God you said to him. That's okay. 
You can say, but God, you said. That's okay. That's what Abram does here. He can handle that. Jesus can handle that. In Hebrews 11, we're actually told that Abraham is our model for faith. That he is what it looks like to have faith. And here he is, but God, you said. And you see, the reality is, is there's a type of doubt that is faith. And you're allowed to have that. And it is good and run headlong into it. Believing doubt, faithful doubt, it wrestles and it struggles and it cries and it prays and it goes to God and it brings to God your God, but you said. And that faithful doubt, it prepares for the answer. And faithful doubting is taking your questions to God and seeking and struggling and wrestling with the answers. But you see, this kind of doubt still looking to God. That's why it's faithful. There certainly is unbelieving doubt. There's the kind of doubt that leads to unbelief. Unbelieving doubt doesn't struggle. It doesn't wrestle. That's what marks it. Unbelieving doubt usually actually looks like trying to control the world or withdraw from the world. It looks like trying to control all of your circumstances so you actually don't have to wrestle with God. So you don't have to say, but God, you said, because you're actually relying on yourself to make it right and to make you right. So it might look like control, unbelief. Or unbelief might look like laziness, disengaging from struggle. Hiding your heart away so that it will grow hard and you can just get to the other end of life, having to go through it, and you can go through it without ever having to struggle with God and struggle with those, but God, you said. This is our fear. This is our doubt. I'm not right, and I was supposed to be. I'm not right, and you said you would make me right. I have, we all have our lies. We all have our, our image management program we're running right now in front of everybody in this room, me included. But we know that our image management program is a farce. In our worst moments and in our best moments, there's one truth that confronts us over and over in life, and that is this. I'm not right. I'm not right as a husband, and I'm not right as a father, and I'm not right as a friend. And I'm supposed to be. And God promises to make me right. And it's okay for you to go to Him and say, but God, are you going to make me right? Now, this is the fear that's controlling us. The social anxiety you have. You're right now. Some of you are wondering, oh, should I go to Marvel Slab tonight? I don't know. I don't know those people. Am I going to be comfortable? You have all these social anxiety things you're playing in your mind right now, right? The reason they're working in your mind is because you fear that you're not acceptable. You're wondering tonight, oh, is she noticing me? Is he noticing me? All this anxiety about attention from the opposite gender, whether or not you're actually even dating them. It's there because we fear that we're not lovable. Why do we kill ourselves for performance, for grades? It's because we fear that we're not legitimate. Do you see that all of our anxiety and all of our fear is tied to us not feeling right, us not feeling acceptable, us not feeling lovable, us not feeling at peace? God, you said that you would make it right. You can say that to him. You can say that to him. He can handle that but you have to be willing to wrestle with the answer because the way God answers and addresses Abram, he says, fear not. That's really helpful, right? Stop. Fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. A shield is a defender. A shield is a protector. A shield gives life, preserves life. A shield absorbs pain and evil meant for you. God is saying the wrongness of the world and the wrongness in you 
will not get you. It will not take your life. I defend you. I preserve you. I take on evil and pain coming for you. It hits me so that you can have life. Fear not. You know, if you're struggling with this text, you're thinking, how can he say that? If you're struggling with this text, you're thinking, how can he say that? Because this applies to everything. It applies to your body. It applies to your girlfriendlessness. It applies to your boyfriendlessness. It applies to your roommate situation. It applies to your grades. It applies to the trying circumstances in your life that no one knows about. It applies to the plans that fell through, the summer job that you didn't get, the thing that your friend did to you, the abuse that no one knows about, the addictions that you can't stop, the weakness and the sin that you despise in yourself and are deeply shameful of. And this applies to the fearful aftertaste after the best moments. Christian, brothers and sisters, fear not. Fear not. God is your shield and reward shall be great. Paul takes it a step further. Fear not and give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Paul tells us, because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How can God say that to our butt gods? How can he say that to us? It's this, because God knows that we all struggle to believe. He knows what we oftentimes find it very hard to believe, which is he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. He knows what he reiterates to Abram. You will have a son. You will have an heir. Your children will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will make it right. I will make you right. All that is sad will come untrue. So how does it get made right? Our fear is that the world won't be made right, and especially that we won't won't get it right. We won't be made right. How does it get fixed? Verse 6, Abram responds to God, proclaiming over and over and over again, as he always does, his promises. And Abram believed the Lord and counted to him as righteousness. Listen. All of Christianity is built on Genesis 15, 6. If you're going to memorize one verse in the Old Testament, it's Genesis 15, 6. It's all built on this. Genesis 15, 6 is the difference between the horrible legalism that we all hate and wonderful Bible, Christ-centered, Christ-driven, gracious Christianity that God of the Bible is the author of. Everything is built on this verse. How was Abram made right? How was Abram made acceptable to the Lord? How was Abram redeemed? By faith. And if you hear nothing in RUF this semester, this is the point you have to pay attention to. This is the difference between false religion and gospel freedom. The New Testament word for made righteous or righteous is also the word justified. The adjective is righteous and the verb is to make righteous or to justify. And here in this verse, we have the key to all true religion, period. This is the thing you have to hear. The means by which you are made right are, are by faith and not works. You are made, by faith. You are made right by faith. You are utterly, completely, once and for all, in the right and perfect standing with God by faith, merely by hearing His Word and believing it. That's it. The only thing necessary to be made right with God 
is believing that God makes you right with Him. That's it. Have you ever wanted something so badly? It seems like this describes probably part of all of our childhoods. You want something so badly that you start to think, if I believe it hard enough to be true, it'll be true. And so as a little kid, you believe and believe and believe, but just believing something to be true doesn't make it true. Only one time in all of reality does that principle actually work, and it's here. This is the only thing in the world that operates like that. We don't want to believe it, but it's gloriously and wonderfully true. If you believe God makes you right, He does. That's all He requires. Here's the application point. This is one none of us want to believe. Your right standing before God has absolutely nothing to do with the way you behave. Your right standing with God has absolutely nothing to do with the way you behave. We all get a little offended by that and unnerved by it. But let me say it again. You having right standing with God has nothing to do with the way you behave. It's just whether or not you trust God. And Paul's very clear. This is Paul's favorite verse. You can't read his letters without getting Genesis 15 all over you. This is Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, through works, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null, and the promise is void. Because guess what? Nobody kept the law. The law brings wrath. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. No distrust, this is talking about Abram, made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And the words counted to him were not written for his sake, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, raised so that we may be righteous. Galatians 3. Foolish Galatians, Paul's so frustrated with the Galatian church. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. They saw the crucifixion. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's works of the law. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Bible is saying... Faith is reading God's word and trusting in his promises. You are made right, not by your works. Your right standing before God has nothing to do with your behavior. Your right standing with God is determined by whether or not you trust him. This is the difference between soul-destroying evil, Jesus-hates-it moralism, and gospel freedom. This is the difference between horrible make-yourself-try-to-feel-something-in-worship and shouting for joy. 
This is the difference between a false understanding of God where he, somebody stands over you with his arms crossed waiting for you to do the right things and only giving you good things when you do right things and withholding his uh, good things from you when you do bad things. There's a difference between that and a God who weeps at sin and covers it with his blood. This is the difference between the legalism that the world sometimes thinks Christian believe and the grace that, in fact, we do believe and rest in. This is the difference between insecurity and security. This is the difference between being afraid of a mean father and fearing and respecting a good father. This is the difference between death and life. This is the difference between arrogance and humility. It's simple. You're accounted righteous, not because of what you do, but because you trust God. Your behavior has nothing to do with your right standing before God. And this unnerves us if you're actually grappling this because it says all your good things you've done, they didn't get you any credit. They didn't make God like you more. They didn't get God to give you more things. They didn't make you better than anyone. They didn't do anything except for they actually distract you from the fact that they didn't do anything from you. More quiet times doesn't get God to give you a boyfriend. And they didn't justify you, and you know that, because you've been trying so hard to do all of them and you still don't feel justified. Religion that teaches we are justified and made right by our works just makes us bitter, unpleasant, judgmental people who talk about themselves. There are some of us who we think the key is justification by our works. The key to righteousness is working. And what you need to know is your behavior has nothing to do with your right standing before God. There are some of us who think we've done too much. I have to clean myself up first. I have to get it together first. I can't even pray to God without at least getting something under control. You're oppressed by the guilt of serious sin, of long-term addiction, of something that's been overwhelming you for a while, something deeply controlling, a bitterness, whatever it is, and you wonder, can I be made right? And you've got to hear the same message that the Pharisees have to hear. Their good behavior and your bad behavior don't determine your right standing before God. It's just whether or not you trust Him. Justified by faith, made righteous by faith, that changes everything because it means that your justification is not by anything you do. It's in just merely trusting God. <clears throat> We've been doing the confession and assurance in large group for the latter half of this semester. If you're like me, the, the assurance is kind of nerve-wracking because it's kind of hard to believe. And so we read what we read tonight, Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. That's scary to believe. But it's true. You're kind of righteous by trusting God. Because we were made righteous by faith and not by the works of the law. Now, how can that be true? And that's the last question. How is it possible? Abram asked, how can I know? In verse 8, Lord, how am I to know that I'm going to possess the promised land? And that's what we want to know. How do we know that we can be accounted righteous just by faith? Because that's scary. We like actually living by works because we feel like we can control it. Now what goes on in this passage? Because God follows up the conversation with this weird set of instructions. And he's actually showing the basis for us getting made right 
with God. He's demonstrating how this is made possible. Verses 9 through 11, he said to him, You want to know how I make this possible? Bring to me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half, and he laid them over against each other. Cut them in half and laid them side by side. Now, what's going on here? What God's doing is he's cutting what's called cutting a covenant with Abram. Jeremiah 34, 18 is a place that references this is a very normal covenant ceremony that takes place, not just in religious situations, but it actually happened in a lot of political situations. It's a ceremony that was often enacted. It's weird to our ears because we weren't there, but Abram understood what was happening. In these ceremonies, two kings, usually, usually there's kind of a greater king and a lesser king, they would make a covenant, that's an agreement between each other, that had stipulations, an agreement usually that the lesser king would remain loyal, would pay taxes, would honor the greater king, and the greater king would protect and defend. And then what they would do is they would take animals, and they would cut them in half, and they would walk in between them. But look at verse 17. This ceremony is a little bit different. When the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Smoke and fire or demonstrations of the presence of God. When Israel was wandering in the desert, they would follow a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night. When the sun went down, God walked between the pieces. Who didn't? Abram. Abram didn't. Only God does. Now, why is that significant? Because it's very different from the way this covenant ceremony never goes. This is what the ceremony meant in the ancient Near East. When two kings walked through the ceremony, it was... I declare that if I do not hold up my end of the covenant, I forfeit my life. I am to be like the animals we walked between. I'm going to be torn apart, ripped to pieces, destroyed. Imagine, I mean, you've got to see that this is actually true of the temple, but also this. This is a bloody ceremony. Abraham's covered in blood. It's grotesque. It's, it's, it's prompting the image of the deeply bloody ceremony. It wasn't clean. There was no flannel graph. Abram wasn't white with a, with, a, with a brown beard and just had on his perfectly white robe. This was messy. There was blood everywhere. In order to communicate, breaking this covenant is really bad news. It was grotesque. Do you see what it means that only God walked through? God puts his own life up for the covenant, and Abram doesn't. God says, I'll pay the price if I don't keep the covenant. And I'll pay the price if you don't keep the covenant. A friend of mine, the RUF campus minister at Auburn, said it this way. It was God saying, Abram, I will make you righteous. And I will bless you even if I have to be torn to pieces to do it. Even if it costs me my life. Your life will not be forfeited. Mine will. That's what we're celebrating this Friday. The fact that it did cost him his life to make us righteous. That he was torn to pieces to justify us. The God who does that for us, you can bring your doubts and fears to him. He's showing us, look at the extent to which I'm committed to keeping you. You can bring your doubts and fears to him. He's deeply committed to you. Romans 8.23, he didn't spare his own son. He didn't spare his own son. He gave up his son for us. 
how will he not also graciously give us all things? If you want to know why you can trust God, it's because he gave his son for you. He gave his son for you. What more can he do to show you how committed he is to you? If you want to know what your faith is in, it's that he gave his son for you. That his son died in our place for our covenant failure. We didn't walk through the animals. He walked through the animals for us. You want to know why in the worst moments and in the best moments, all our fears and doubts can be wiped away? Because He gave His Son for you. What do you do with the things that cost you the most? Your car, your PS3, whatever it is, your laptop. You expend the most energy protecting them, giving them your best. God's not any different. If you trust in Him, lay your fears and doubts to rest. Bring them to Him. Place them at His feet. See what He's done at the cross. Your sin was taken away. And by faith, His righteousness becomes yours. You are right. You are right before God. Romans 8.1 There is now for no condemnation. There is now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus, tomorrow when your sin accuses you, tomorrow, the next week, when Satan accuses you and says, you're condemned, look what you did again. Hear this, this is God's word to you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see that God can handle your doubts and your fears? Do you see how deeply committed He is to His people? Bring your doubts and fears to Him and let Him show you again and again and again the extent to which He went to preserve you, to hold on to you, to save you, to make you right. If you're an unbeliever here tonight, this is Easter season and you've probably heard the story. I'm not going to belabor it. But this is all I ask of you. Be bold enough to ask yourself, is this all there is? Just be bold enough to ask yourself that question. Be bold enough to struggle with the fact that maybe sometimes you wish that this wasn't all there is. Maybe sometimes, possibly sometimes, you actually act as if there wasn't all there is. And you, you probably don't cry out, but God, you said. But I'm sure you do cry out, but I, right? But I did it right. This wasn't supposed to happen to me because I worked hard. I made the right choices. And you cry out, but I did it right, and it wasn't supposed to be like this. I'm not supposed to still be wrong, and this world is not supposed to be treating me this way. Who are you crying out to? Consider that there may be more. That's all I ask. Consider that you, you might be made right, that it may be yours, and it's received by grace. Through faith. Let's pray.